Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's women in the academy and professions. Giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well. This is Caroline Trissick, and our guest today is Grace P. Cho. Grace is a writer and the editorial manager at Encourage, an online publication for women. In the middle of her years in church ministry, Grace sensed God moving her toward writing, to use her words to lead others in a broader context. She now coaches writers, mentors leaders, and believes that telling our stories can change the world. I so enjoyed this conversation with Grace as she shared how she discerned God's call on her life, her journey toward motherhood, entering into pain and suffering with others, her experience of embracing her identity as a Korean-American woman, and so much more. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Well, Grace, thank you so much for being our guest on the podcast today. With most of our audience being women in academia, can you begin by sharing briefly about your educational background and how that has influenced who you are today? Sure. Hi. I was homeschooled as a kid up until my junior year of high school because I lived overseas as a missionary's kid. And when I was sent back to the States, I finished I finished high school, but I could not wait to get out of Orange County, which is where I went after I came back to the States. And I attended UC Irvine, got my BA in psychology. And because I wanted to do ministry, but my parents were worried about Mm -hmm. my experience overseas, they wanted me to get a degree I could use. And so I got a teaching credential. After that, I went to get a master's degree at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and received a master's in religion with an emphasis in world missions, thinking that that would help me if I were to go overseas to a country that may not be open to Christianity. So all of my, uh, at least college and above, all of my academic work was geared towards me going overseas and working, um, hopefully marrying a pastor, because that's the only way I saw women in ministry. Interesting. Um, Lead was only if they were a pastor's wife. And so that determined actually a lot of how I studied and how I, the degrees, the kind of degrees I got or the, or the way I just perceived myself in mm-hmm. academia was the goal is just to be married to a pastor so, or a missionary pastor so that I can lead in the ways that I want to. So then I assume since we talked earlier, you are living in California. So that didn't end up being what happened. <laughs> So where are you now and what are you doing? Uh, okay. I, I I mentioned I grew up overseas. I grew up in Kazakhstan and okay. um, I really, for some reason, even growing up there, had a heart for the Spanish language. And so I thought I was going to marry someone, a pastor, and go do ministry in Latin America. But I am married to a Korean American man. We live in California. And all of that deconstruction actually happened in seminary when what I thought were my dreams, what I thought was what God was calling me to for his kingdom's sake, which was to lead, to do ministry. He, I, I use the word destroy, which may, may be a harsh word, but I really felt like he destroyed my dreams that I thought were for him and that I thought I had with him, that God, God and I had had conversations about this and, you know, all of that. So um, it was a really confusing time, actually, my second year of seminary. And 
what does it mean that I, I just thought that my husband would actually come into ministry. He was in the cooking industry at the time. Okay. And I thought somehow, God, you're a God of miracles. So you can bring him over and use his skills for, you know, for your kingdom and all of that. And I had a more uh, compartmentalized idea of living out our faith. Um, And what does it mean to, what is the higher calling of people in God's kingdom? So I couldn't connect the two. Could my, at the time, fiance come in and do ministry with his cooking skills. And that had to be all in essence destroyed. And so I'm, we got married and that that's a whole story in and of itself. I, I felt like I was at a crossroads in my faith and the Lord was asking me, do you, do you trust me or do you trust yourself in your dreams that you had for me? And if you loved me, if you really love me, you'll obey me. And obeying me entails marrying this man that you're engaged to and not going overseas and actually doing ministry in Vegas. And so that's what I did. I did ministry for seven years there. And then now we're here in California, which is where I semi grew up prior to going overseas. Yeah. Thank you for sharing about that. It's interesting Mm -hmm. to hear how you use the word destroy (laughs) in a way that that's what it felt like for you in that time. Exactly. Yeah. I I think when I tell people that story, they think, how could that be? How, why would God do that? Or, or maybe I got it wrong in the first place, but really destroying is the best word and destroying so that he can reconstruct um, my faith and my theology. So it was needed. I think it had to be that dramatic of a word in order to help me understand what I had to let go of. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it reminds me, I think it's in Hosea where it says something like, you've torn us into pieces mm. to rebuild us or something mm. like that. And it's all about like the Lord drawing his people back to him, mm-hmm. how God has to do that or chooses yeah. to, th- to do that with each of us in different ways is really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned being a missionary kid and, mm-hmm. and homeschooled. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you share a little bit more about your spiritual background and your faith journey kind of growing up and how that has shaped who you are? I grew up, I'm a pastor's kid and a missionary's kid. So there's, I I think there are ideas of what a PK is like or their life is like. And I think I lived into the stereotypical PK life, which for me meant there were things that were happening in the home that weren't good or healthy, Mm -hmm. but had to be covered up because we're pastor's kids and we need to put on a smile before we go Mm -hmm. into worship service, even though my parents from what I remember, I felt like they fought every Sunday prior to church. It was a, it was a violent home. That's the best way I can describe it now in hindsight. So that on top of, we grew up in the Presbyterian context, so more conservative, more reformed. That's how my dad was. But also when I came back to this, our home church here in California, they were very, that mindset was really strong. So very, very reformed. Um, There's nothing wrong with that, but I I think that really shaped, we were, you know, reciting catechisms on Sundays. This is both elementary students and youth group students. And so I was, I was highly shaped by that theological context. And so the way I saw myself, God in the world was really, and now I can say not only a reformed context, but a very white reformed theological context, even though all my pastors were Korean Americans and I grew up in a immigrant Korean American church, but because that was the only 
theology that was deemed right and good. Hmm. Um, there was nothing outside of that that I could have known or seen. And, and that, I mean, that goes to show why I hadn't seen any women right. um, be a leader, really, unless they were labeled director, or children's director, or even children's pastor, but no one could go. I hadn't seen a woman go beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. only allowed to teach women or children, essentially. Exactly. And, and I really was okay with that, even though I knew I had leadership qualities within myself. Because I hadn't seen, there was nothing to compare it to. And so I I didn't see the limits, I guess. I just thought that that's the way it was. And that also actually shaped this idea of, of Western saviorist mentality and my desire to go overseas and, you know, go into the, basically be like Jim Elliott and go into the jungles of Ecuador. I think that was my dream as a kid is to grow up and then become a martyr because I was so influenced by the books that were given to me, the stories I had heard. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Which all. were all written by white men. Yeah. 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 yeah, absolutely. Aside from Elizabeth Elliot. Sure. I think still the stories though, were mostly, or the theology or the words were really 99% written by white male theologians or white right. male Christians. Yeah. So then now you are the editorial manager of Encourage, Mm -hmm. which is an, correct me if I'm wrong, an online publication, Mm -hmm. primarily for Christian women or, and then as well as a writer on other platforms. But you also have noted that you were reluctant about writing at first and sensed that it was something that God was calling you to. Can you share more about how you heard from Jesus that that's what he had for you? Because I'm hearing the story of how you... Mm how he destroyed your original plan and then (laughs) bringing up this new plan as a writer. How did that come to be? Yeah, I had not seen myself as anything but someone in ministry. So after I had my first child, which even that journey into motherhood felt roundabout because I, again, thought one way in my conversations with God, but he took me a different way. Hmm. I don't know what that says about me or my, my journey (laughs) or my idea of God, but now I'm less, I'm not trying to figure him out as much. I I think that's, we all try to do that, right? We try to make sense of what our situation is through a story. Oh, absolutely. Um, And so when we, when we couldn't get pregnant for some time, I had always wanted to adopt. And so I thought, okay, yes, God, okay, this makes sense. You're not allowing for bio children. That's fine will adopt. Um, and then I actually got pregnant um, oh, wow. while we were in the process of becoming foster parents. And that did not make sense to me. I try to make sense of it thinking, okay, I got pregnant. Oh, that must mean that you want me to miscarry so that I can understand the heartache and the loss of losing a child. Hmm. So when I didn't lose her and she was born, I did not know how to be. I hadn't read anything about becoming a mom outside of the context of becoming an adoptive mom. And so I felt, I felt very lost as a first time mom, mm-hmm. not only because of this journey into motherhood, but because I was the first woman on staff to be a new mom at the church that I was at. And so I, I don't think anyone mm-hmm. knew how to help me or how to make space or teach me how to do this thing. Like how, how does one lead and be a mother at the same time, or have all the obligations and responsibilities of being on staff, but 
also, I, I would bring my baby to staff meetings, feeding her mm-hmm. during staff meetings. I just had no idea how to do it. And so in those first, first six months, one, I was very depressed, but I felt very lost in my identity of who am I if I can't lead anymore? Who am I if I'm basically mm-hmm. stuck at home? I don't really see people. I don't really do anything except this big task of mothering this baby. I don't even know how to do that. And it was in that wrestling that I thought, Lord, what, what do I do with myself? Sure. And I I just remembered, um, I read so many blogs uh, while we were looking into adopting and fostering. And I thought, wow, those people don't know me, but their words impacted me so greatly. And so what would that look? I think that was the first time the thought of blogging as a way to impact others came to mind. And how, you know, these people were writing probably from their homes or coffee shops or wherever it may be, but it was being widespread via mm-hmm. the internet. And that really fascinated me at the time. And so that was, I think that was the first time I thought, oh, maybe, or some sort of inkling of a nudge from God. And But it took years. No one had told me growing up that my writing was great. I think most writers have a story of an elementary teacher or a high school teacher that said, you know, you're a great writer or something like that. My -hmm. story was the opposite of that, which was no one, I was very poor at language arts. Okay. Um, So I did not like writing at all in the academic sense. I (laughs) was terrible. I think in some (laughs) area, to be honest, it wasn't my, I, I felt suffocated by the format, but I loved words in general. I loved reading. I felt like it was a portal through which we can live into another world. Mm-hmm. And so it took me years for me to finally say, God, are you sure this is from you? If it is from you, then other, shouldn't other people confirm that outside of me? But aside from posts, you know, on Facebook or Instagram or little blogs here and there, there was really no way to know except to do it and, sure, yeah. and to step into obedience. So well, a friend had told me, Grace, when you don't obey, you're withholding blessing from people, from others. And that really struck me as having a pastor's heart for people. I realized if I'm afraid to do something just because I'm fearful that I shouldn't be doing it or that I wouldn't be good at it, those are my own issues I need to resolve and shouldn't impact my obedience if God is really calling me to it. So it took me a while to, you know, put money into it, like getting my own website, actually taking time to write or being in writer's groups or even calling myself a writer Right. Um, That took a while. Um, And now I feel very comfortable to call myself a writer and now an editor. All skills that I gained over my life, like even my editorial or grammatical skills, they were gained through my homeschooling years where we were, I don't know if, I don't know who does this in elementary, but we were taught to diagram our sentences. Okay. I learned that in college, actually. Oh. But <laughs> I was an I English think... major. I was an English oh, okay. major. So yeah, but never in, never in elementary school or middle school or high school yeah. did I ever diagram a sentence. Until I just love the, I just love the funny. beauty of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Of the lines and the structure and how it looks on the page when you diagram yeah. a sentence. And so I, I think God was, I didn't know it was a dream, but it had laid dormant for so long. That when God was uh, nudging me in this way, I just started to remember all the things I used to do as a kid, that this was a way of me creating another reality for myself that was better and different from my real 
life and how that helped me to connect actually with God and knowing that he is unlike man, unlike uh, that the world that he wants for us is unlike the one that I am living. And so he reminded me all of that and that helped me and people affirming that my words, you know, moved them or made them think differently or or things like that, Mm -hmm. that helped me over the years to really say that this is now the way that I'm going to impact others. And, and the word, a different word I received when I was being reluctant to do this was you're going to use your words to lead others. And that I felt like was an aligning of my self prior to being a mom. And then this new identity of, or this new gifting of being a writer, but also using it not just for the sake of working out what's inside me, but really as a way to lead others to Christ and to be more reflective and to go deeper. So that's my roundabout story of how I became a writer and now an editor. And I love words. And I think really that words can change the world as I've been changed by the words of many others before me. Beautiful. And I love that story of remembering how Mm. much you loved diagramming sentences now (laughs) that you're in that as your vocation in some sort of way. I mean, you're not diagramming sentences, but essentially (laughs) moving things around and making it beautiful. Yeah. Um, And it's fun to see how the the editorial side really plays into my pastoral care for people. And so mm. not only do I get to care for the writer themselves, by, by caring for their words, but it's a combination. We can make excellent work together yeah. so that um, people will be impacted the most. And so it seems as though this was what I was meant to be in some ways, mm-hmm. um, bringing all my gifts together into this world of writing and editing. And I couldn't have imagined that at all for myself prior to. And there's that creating space for people to share their stories Mm -hmm. in your leadership, like the editorial leadership of making space for someone's voice to be heard. Yes. Uh, And even that idea of like, you couldn't have dreamed this up for Mm -hmm. yourself, what your life would be like, none of us could have dreamed up, I think, where we would end up. If my dream had come to be of who I would be when I grow up, it would be so mundane compared to what (laughs) God God had in mind. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Praise God. <laughs> anyway. uh, but yeah, so you wrote a piece recently at Encourage mm-hmm. about a season of significant pain and difficulty in your marriage. And within that piece, you wrote about people around you wanting you to be, quote unquote, in a good place again. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a common experience, particularly for women who are suffering, especially in the church context. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what you think is underneath that inability to sit with others in pain, especially within the Christian community. You know, I think part of it has to do with the fact that we can't even sit in pain with ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we avoid pain as much as possible. And particularly in our context of Western American Christianity, and maybe that's uh, maybe even outside of the Christian context, maybe that's just the way our culture is that we, you know, I I wrote the word epidural in that post. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I, I'm someone who growing up glorified suffering, but the truth is when it comes, that when it comes down to it, I want to avoid pain as well. And I don't know how to endure through pain. And I I think that's what we're trying to avoid all the time is it's uncomfortable. It's painful. And not only can we not do that for ourselves, that makes it even harder to do it for someone else because we'd rather look away from their pain. Cause maybe, maybe it reminds us of our pain and things that mm-hmm. we haven't even dealt with. 
And so we go for the resurrection story. We go for the happy ending. We go for, so tell me that your marriage is better now. Like what, what have you, and I, mm. I think there was such a rush for people, even as I'm sharing in the midst of it, I just wanted someone to say like, I get it. You've been wronged or this is not okay. Or it's okay even to be angry right now. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were trying to help me see that my husband is still a good person. He was, and he is, but that wasn't the point. The point was come and sit with me. I'm, I'm having a hard time and our marriage is imploding right now, but you're wanting me to say, no, 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 your marriage is still good. Look at all the people who actually do have hard marriages or look at the people who are maybe now divorced or something like that. I think there's a comparison that's happening because we just don't want, we want to dismiss that. We want to dismiss the pain and say, no, come out and be in this good place because it's not okay to say that we're in pain. <sighs> so on top of that, being in the Christian community, I think we already live a compartmentalized faith. So we separate, you know, it can't just be a, like we, we like superheroes because there's a very clear delineation of who's good and who's bad. And if it's the hero, then we, you know, turn a blind eye to their quote unquote badness. Let's say like King David, you know, he was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a murderer. He was also an adulterer. And yeah. we say those things, but I, I don't think we think like, what would it have been like to be in that context or in his family or his wife or because that makes us uncomfortable, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so we try to, I think we, we do that. We separate good and bad pain and glory. We don't want to sit in good Friday or Holy Saturday. We want to get to Easter Sunday because that's the ultimate goal of a lot of Christian thinking is let's just look to that end when we finish this race because then it'll be worth it. But I think in doing so, which is good, and we look forward to that, uh, we diminish what life is really like and how God enters actually into our pain, into this life that he decided to come down into. And I think we miss out when we're only looking for the hope of what's to come. Then we don't see the hope that is happening right here, right now. A heaven Mm. breaking down into our regular lives. I think that was the question I kept asking when our marriage was difficult. And this was recent. This was the last six months of 2019. Okay. And I kept asking like, if this cannot be redeemed, how does my faith come and play into this? How can I say I have hope when it seems like there's truly no hope at all? And how can I hope for redemption when I don't even know the way to have this redeemed? And so it wasn't helpful when people were saying, but Grace, you should still hold on to hope, right? What does that even mean? It didn't mean much to me mm-hmm. when people were saying that because the truth is I needed to know how. <laughs> I needed to know like, God, do you even care to be sitting here with me or do you also want me to rush to the ending? That's when Holy Saturday really became more meaningful to mm-hmm. me is God stayed in the tomb for three days. I don't know what happened during that time, but just the fact that he stayed there meant mm-hmm. so much to me because he took the time to stay before he rose again. And so I wish that more for our faith, not just for people who are suffering, but for all of us to understand that that is the kind of God we have, a God who sits with us in the dark and in the pain, not rushing us, but staying with us, comforting us and walking us then from that point to hope or to light. Yeah. You raise a lot of good thoughts there about the complexity of people, right? And Mm -hmm being both good and bad, 
we can't just separate everything out. Like there's pain and then there's redemption that they're inextricably sort of tied together in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that thinking about Jesus on Holy Saturday. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. what, what was happening there for him? Right. Is that what's happening for us in that space in between too. Right. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that, you know, not everyone will have a redeemed story. Sure. And I think we, or at least I was taught growing up, divorce is so bad. So don't even think about going there. And so I feel like we demonized people who did get divorced, saying that they just didn't make enough of an effort or something like that. And so that idea of if you cross over that way, then you you have a label of being bad, mm-hmm. but not recognizing like there are so many complexities that happen in a marriage, in our faith, and that truly not every marriage or every story will be redeemed. Not everyone is going to be healed or experience the final story. And can we be okay with that in our faith? We have to be, we have to be, even though we're looking for the resurrection story now, it may not happen until Christ comes back. And I don't think we have a very well thought out version of that. And I'm hoping we get there more (laughs) so that we're not dismissing the pain of others and even the pain in our own lives that we haven't worked out yet. Absolutely. Yeah. And that idea of the outcome might not be positive. It might not look like what we all hope it will look like, but Mm -hmm. that there's still good within it. Yes. Yes. And that we can survive. I think that as you Mm. talked about earlier, that wanting to kind of numb ourselves and to avoid even exploring the the worst case scenario, like spending a little time exploring the worst case scenario to let yourself know you actually can survive it. Yeah. Like, how will we know our faith is real and tangible unless it's tested, right? Unless, Mm -hmm. and I I think this idea of like, do we even know how to endure? And do we even know what perseverance feels like if we don't experience pain? Sure. And even prolonged pain at that, because we don't just gain perseverance by having faith, if that makes sense. Like, you know, it's not just Mm -hmm. some sort Mm of reward given to us, but we actually have to go through things. But when we avoid going through things, then can we even say that our faith has endured, that it has legs to stand on, you know, Mm -hmm. I can can go into a whole thing on that, but yeah, I know. Right. I'm like, we can totally veer off all of them. Forget all the other questions. We're just going to talk about pain and suffering. Yeah. So we'll shift gears though, before we all have an existential crisis. Just kidding. Anyways, you also recently wrote a piece at the Art of Tala about mm-hmm. body image and how mm-hmm. our perception of ourselves reflected against mostly societal standards of beauty can be mm-hmm. a short path to a burying of our true selves and essentially not seeing ourselves as good or very good as God mm-hmm. speaks of all of human creation. Can you say more about your own journey toward loving all of who you are as a Korean American woman? Sure. For many years of my life, I I was so embarrassed, ashamed to be Korean. And this happened particularly when I came back to the States in high school. I went to a high school that actually did have a lot of Asians, but I think because there were so many categories of Asian identities to try to belong to, I, I, I realized I didn't belong in any of them. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't quite grew up in the States, but I did. I was second generation child of immigrants, but then also we lived overseas. So I didn't quite fit in with the Korean Americans or those who had immigrated first gen. I I just didn't fit in any way. And that made me hate it even more. The, Mm. The fact that that 
I wasn't just othered, but I was othered even in groups where I should have belonged. And back then, in, when I was um, in high school, there was a lot of what people called KP, Korean pride. Okay. And I hated that. Like, I did not listen to any K-pop. I did not watch Korean dramas. I did not want to speak Korean. I really, in essence, hated myself, I think. Mm. But not recognizing that I was hating myself. I wanted to separate myself from that, except I could not separate myself from my face, you know? So Mm -hmm. it, it was this idea of, I basically wanted to be white because white to me felt standard and normal. And I would look at these groups and I thought in my mind, you should just assimilate. Please stop talking like that. Please stop acting like that. Just be quote unquote normal. But that was a wrestling I was having within myself, but I didn't see it at the time. And I ended up oppressing my own Koreanness in order to feel wanted, in order to feel quote unquote normal and to try to fit in, even though I really didn't. So that was years of that. And I almost prided myself, I think, actually, on not belonging, on Mm. not being Korean, on not in, I guess, trying to assimilate to any or every culture. But it wasn't until the Black Lives Matter movement, actually, when I started to think about my own ethnic journey, identity journey. And it was such a strange uh, correlation to have the Black Lives Matter movement when Trayvon Martin was killed, and then two years later to have Michael Brown killed in Ferguson. My, mm-hmm. my sister is married to a black man and they, she was pregnant with her first son at the time. Okay. And that was around the time Ferguson had happened. And I thought she is carrying my nephew who will one day also be a biracial teen mm-hmm. who will be looked by the world as a black boy. And it really struck me as what did that mean for how I look at the black community and the racist assumptions I had grown up with or were taught by the generations who came before me. And I thought, oh my goodness, here I was thinking that their worth was less than a white person and recognizing that and repenting of that. And then also seeing, oh my goodness, I saw myself also less than even Mm -hmm. that because white was the top and white was the standard than anything below that. And I, I felt like I was at the bottom of that. So it was seeing their worth that made me realize, wait, my Koreanness has worth. God made me this way not with malintent, but actually on purpose and that it's good, that it's very good. And so I've, I've struggled a lot, even since then, what does it mean to accept myself as a Korean American, not only in, in the cultural stuff, but also what I wrote about in, in beauty standards and what am I trying to do when I'm putting on my makeup and the people I look to for, you know, beauty advice, not that I really care Uh, so much. I'm not versed in that, but who do I look to and say that's beautiful or that's good or that's desirable? I'm still in the process of deconstructing all of that and really owning and appreciating my culture. And that came uh, not only through the Black Lives Matter movement, but last two years ago, we took our kids to Korea. And it was the first time I experienced Korea outside of my parents. We just went for our own um, leisure Mm -hmm. and I got to see Korea for, for who she was or who she is and the oppression that we experienced in our history and not even knowing or even wanting to know that history before, all of a sudden I felt hungry for, wait, what's the legacy I carry just because I'm Korean? Even though I didn't grow up in Korea, what is the legacy I have 
because this is my history and the history of my people. And there's this Korean word, word called Han. And it's okay. the feeling of like a righteous anger for the injustices of oppression. Kind, I kind of, I'm probably not explaining. Explain no, it no, no. That, that sounds familiar. I believe okay. um, somebody else that I interviewed on this podcast brought oh, that okay. same word up. Oh, um, I love that. Yeah. Grace Jisun Kim. Oh, uh, yes. yes. Mm. In, uh, the interview I did with her on her book, Healing Our Broken Humanity. Oh, okay. I'm so familiar she, with it. And I'm I, sure she described it in a much better way. No, I think it was very similar. <laughs> so don't, don't discount yourself. <laughs> but I, I think that I used to not understand that concept. And I was trying to separate, right? I didn't want to say that that was my legacy and to say, I don't understand it. I'm American. That was what I wanted to embrace most of all. But going to Korea and recognizing, ah, oh, this is this is why we beat our chests and cry out for justice mm-hmm. and why Korean people are, I used to think like, oh, that's just so dramatic, like them protesting. They do a lot of protests in Korea. I feel I, I felt like I saw a lot of footage of that on the news. Okay. And I just thought they were being dramatic. But now knowing more of the history, I'm like, of course, of course we need to protest. Of course we have that Han yeah, that needs yeah. to be released through protest, through writing, through art, whatever it may be, and recognizing I carry that whether I want to or mm. not. And that it's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing and something that I'm relating to God, that God is a God of justice. Mm-hmm. And so he feels our Han. He holds that as well. The tension of there's injustices in the world and we're fighting for justice to happen. And that one day it will come about completely. But in this current time, we will live in tension. And I think that's what it means to be of two cultures and multiple cultures because I lived overseas and living in that tension and holding that tension now I'm starting to love love being in that place and wanting my kids to understand what it means to be Korean and the good things of it and the hard things of it in a way that was not taught to me because our immigrant parents really wanted us to assimilate. And that was what I thought was the right thing to do was to assimilate. And now, again, deconstructing that and really coming to a more integrated place of this is who God made me to be in this current context for this time in history? And how can I elevate the goodness of that instead of being ashamed? And would you say that it shaped you understanding more of who you are as a Korean American woman and that integration within yourself shaped how you view God and who you view him to be? Yeah, I I think it changed the way, not only how I saw myself, God, but also the rest of the world that the whole Western saviors mentality mm-hmm. um, that became de- deconstructed to see like, wait, we're all equal. Right. Not I'm better than you because I grew up in this place or I've had these privileges, but my goodness, we are all of equal worth and therefore we should all be learning from each other equally and not to elevate one person or the other. And to know that God can encompass all that and hold all of that, that he did this on purpose, all the deconstruction that has happened in my life so far has blown God out of that box I had put him in or the boxes Mm -hmm. that I was taught to put him in and to see he is so vast and wide and mysterious beyond what I could have imagined him to be. And that has made me more gracious and more compassionate toward myself Mm -hmm. and to others to see a God who can hold all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm struck by the contrast even between the idea of Han 
Mm -hmm. And as we were talking about earlier, the inability for the sort of white church culture, Mm -hmm. I mean, can we say it's white church culture or Western culture, the inability to sit in suffering with one another, to acknowledge suffering, to be present with each other in it compared to the outcry and the lament Mm -hmm. you describe of, of Han. Yeah, I I used to think in Korean spirituality, a lot of our parents or or, uh, a lot of the immigrant churches would have early dawn prayer meetings. And as a kid, of course, we hated that. Like who wants to get up at five (laughs) o'clock before the sun rises so that we could be at church when the sun rises in order to cry out. Mm -hmm. And now in the context of understanding Han and having to release Han, that, that was the, not only do we have Han, but we have to find ways to release it. Mm-hmm. Um, but recognizing, oh yeah, they had to, they had to come together in the early hours of the morning because they had to release that Han and literally cry out very loudly in prayer to a God who can come in and be with. And I didn't value that before, but now seeing, oh, we actually have a history of lamenting because mm-hmm. we have the history and legacy of Han. And that has taught me now to say like, my people have done that and I can also enter into that and do that for others. Uh, because I have both, right? I have grown up in right. the white Western church, um, even though it was an immigrant church, but that mentality of right. let's move away from pain. So I, I'm balancing both of those things. How do we teach people and ourselves to lament together, knowing that that's the legacy we hold in our bodies? Hmm. Uh, not just for Asian Americans or Korean Americans, but the church on a whole. Yeah. 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 And we see it throughout the Psalms. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. there's so much about just being able to cry out and name yeah. your, name the pain and name the suffering and cry out to the Lord and invite him to be in it with us. Mm-hmm. So, well, totally shifting gears again, then before <laughs> we go back to pain and suffering. <laughs> So we're always curious at The Well about the daily routines of working women with families and the rhythms that you keep of work and family life. What are some of those daily routines, sort of the beginning and end of the day things that keep you connected to Jesus, but also to your family and your work as well? I was thinking as someone who works from home, that Mm -hmm. um, daily routines is hard to nail down, to be honest. As the person who does most of the pickup and drop off, and managing the home in our home. I feel like I'm run by that, but also one of the things that we have been recognizing in ourselves and in our family dynamic is we don't have a lot of play. And so that is a new rhythm we're trying to practice. Play is actually, ironically, a really hard thing for me. I used to play very well as a kid. And even when I was not a mother, I thought playing with kids is so fun. But once I became a mother, playing became harder for me. And I became the not fun parent, even though I thought I would be the fun parent, but (laughs) (laughs) I am not, I'm going to, I'm going to admit that and acknowledge that. So I feel like the invitation recently has been for us to have rhythms of play and just being together. And so one of the things we have been trying to do is to have board games or card games to wind down our family with, and we live with my in-law. So This is just for our two children, but kind of having that quiet space where we're not ramped up, but having play be the way that we enter into rest. And so that's a, that's a a new routine we're trying to implement into our families, but particularly for me, I think 
for kids, obviously it's easy. They want me to play with them, but I am having a harder time trying to put that into my daily routine. And then our lives also shifted this past year as my husband left the cooking industry and decided to go into engineering. Okay. Um, so that's a big change. <laughs> it, yeah. it was a big change. And um, his life as a, a chef or, or a cook was not your regular person's nine to five job. So for most, for all of our marriage uh, until last year, it was on the chef's schedule. So working at night or working early in the mornings. And so we did not have a typical rhythm as a family, but now we're learning to have a new rhythm where we're together in the evenings, we're together on the weekends, and we never had that. So mm. what does play look like then? For us, when we're actually playing at the same time as everybody else, and how can we incorporate more community and rest? I, I, those those three words, community, rest, and play, those are the three things that we're trying to put into not only our daily routine, but now in this new schedule of life that we have with my husband's change of career. So I don't know if that answered the question, but oh, um, yeah. I feel like it's like a atypical answer. of No, I love it because it's so interesting, community, play, and rest. And I mm. feel like a lot of those are things that are in some ways countercultural to mm. sort of the pace of life. And yeah. likewise, I can relate to not always wanting to play with my children. Mm, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> but I also was an excellent player when I was a child. Like yes. I played for hours and hours and hours with, you know, no mm -hmm. problem whatsoever. I never got bored. I don't remember being bored. Maybe yeah. my parents would say differently, but yeah, I find it difficult to sort of enter in and play for periods of time with my children even though they would want me to, especially my daughter, who's very mm -hmm. extroverted. And I wonder when it, how we unlearned that, you know? I know. I was just going to ask you, when did that happen? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 The seriousness of life or something. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. I also wonder for myself, I remember doing these, I had, there's, I'm second of four kids and there's a huge gap between me and the third um, okay. sister. And then there's a brother at the end. And I used to put on, instead of doing my homeschool work, I used to put on these elaborate play narratives, I guess. I don't know. So they would, you know, they went out and play house and then I would put them in costume. I would have a house ready. I would, I would basically direct their play, which I don't yeah. know if they were annoyed by that, but <laughs> um, I basically created a world for them that they can enter into and live out this fantasy of what a home would be like or something like that. So now I think back on those times and I thought I was a creative person or a creative kid, but yeah. I think it got squashed because it came at the expense of my academics. And okay. so in order to correct my ways, I had to give up the play mm -hmm. because I had to be a more serious student perhaps. But the working, going back to being a child is actually a lot harder <laughs> yeah, yeah. Than, I, than I thought it would be. I, I thought actually the kids would help me enter back into that more easily, but I'm recognizing how hardened I've become as an adult hmm. and to break out of that shell and re-engage with my child self has been a lot harder to enjoy. I thought it would be more enjoyable, but it really is a practice and a discipline. Yeah. To play. yeah and I love that, that shift or reframing of it as a practice, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. something that we, you know, we could act like, oh, we don't have time for this, but right, that making it's yeah, mm -hmm. like choosing into it because it's actually something that we need too. Like we need yeah. the joy, the joy yeah. of play. So two more questions. We've talked a lot about pain and suffering. So yes. where do you find hope in the midst of suffering? When things get too big and overwhelming, I actually do feel like a child. Mm. 
And as children, I think we look for the small things. So I always imagine myself when I'm overwhelmed, I have this picture in mind of myself as a tiny, tiny person in the hands of God Mm. and that his hands are vast and the world is vast in not in an overwhelming way, but in a, there's actually still good in this world. And so I start to look down, like, look, I come closer to the ground, meaning then I often look at nature or look outside or look for things that I think nature for me is a way that I find hope again. Right now in California, everything is blooming. (laughs) February Mm. is actually spring. And I am always amazed when the trees bloom and they are so colorful because I think it's a, it always feels like a miracle, even though that's the nature of nature is it will always bloom when it's warm and it has enough water and all of that. And yet it still surprises me. So that's one way. And also in the mundane rhythms of cooking, that's a way I've been finding hope for, we may not be able to solve all the world's problems or even argue enough to solve the world's problems online. But when we feed someone, when we cook it ourselves and we feed someone, in that moment, there's peace and joy and hope. The idea of like, we can still be communal. We can still be community and love one another through the medium of food. I think that has been the most meaningful way for me these Mm -hmm. days. How can we connect with one another in a time when we're trying to separate and distinguish how different we are? What are the bridges that will help us actually be more connected? And for me, I found that food is a great way to bring people together and to ease the tension of Mm -hmm. our differences to say like, hey, we all, even if we don't enjoy food, we all need food Mm -hmm. to be alive and to be connected. So if we did it together, if I fed you with the love of my hands, can we see each other as human beings and not as opposite parties or enemies or people Mm -hmm. who just don't agree? So those are the two ways that I've been finding hope these days. I love what you just said. If I feed you from the love of my hands, can we see one another as, as human beings? Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, we like to conclude the podcast with the same question to all of our guests. Is there a particular quote or scripture or song or other set of words that has been meaningful to you lately? And can you share why it might resonate with you at this time? A friend sent me this Maya Angelou quote the other day. I think it's a pretty famous quote. I'm not quite sure which work of art it's from, but it says, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. She sent this to me after I was telling her about the story I I wrote. It ended up coming out more like a spoken word poetry form, Mm -hmm. but it was a story about chuk, which is the Korean word for rice porridge. So it, it was actually about food and there was such tension as I was writing it because I wanted to write it more of a, more of a, an essay story and recognizing like it sat within, I experienced this. I had never enjoyed chuk before, but a year ago, my mother-in-law brought home this bowl of chuk from church as leftovers. And they actually had celebrated the end, I think of a month long or a week long early dawn prayer movement. So all of that, I think the heritage of not only our Korean spirituality, but it ended with food and the women coming together at the church kitchen, all of that. Anyways, it tasted unlike any rice porridge I had before. Mm. And clearly it stayed with me for a long time because I wrote that 
in the last two weeks or so. And I only realized that it, it's actually been a year since I ate that bowl and how long it stayed with me. But the story needed to be written mm. and it needed to come out. And even the process of it coming out was not comfortable because I'm, I'm not a poet. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I can finally say I'm a writer. I'm not, a, I'm not really a poet, but um, well, maybe you it, are, maybe you or, are, or maybe, yeah, <laughs> who knows, who knows. Um, uh, but the fact that it wanted to come out that way, I think that was an experience I, I haven't had as a writer that the mm-hmm. words were leading themselves, that the story itself wanted to come out and it was demanding that it was going to come out in this form. That was what I had written actually for the Someday is Here event, okay, um, which was an Asian American women's gathering for this podcast that Vivian Mambuni does. And so when I told the story, it, it was just so interesting to see how much it resonated, not just because it was a story about food, but because it was a spoken word and, and incorporating Korean words in that the things that my mother said, the things that my mother-in-law said to me. And all, all of that just reminded me, oh, it was agony for the story to sit in me for so mm-hmm. long. And it was agony to take it out. But when I did, it hit someone else's agony. And we were, it, it, in some ways, it was as if we were able to sing the same song together because it was each other's stories. And so we all have, I think we all have untold stories within us that I'm hoping we can tell more and more of, not only as writers, but just everybody. If we could tell our stories, again, wouldn't that connect us to seeing each other as more human? Absolutely. I love that quote. Yeah. Yeah. Your spoken word piece, was it recorded? Uh, It was recorded by people, but I haven't posted it yet. Okay. Okay. I was just wondering if there would be a way for us to to link it in the show notes. If so, you one day. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Excellent. Awesome. Well, Grace, thank you so much for your time. It has been a joy to speak with you and to learn a a little bit about your story and to encourage us to tell our own stories as well. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.